Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is The High Road by Pastor Sean Wood. Let's pray. Father, we're in your house. We're together and we're here to hear your voice. So may our hearts be open and our ears be open to you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you'd like to turn in your Bible, we're going to jump around a little bit today. What if I told you today that there is a road and this road leads to absolute maturity in Christ? This road is the road that allows you to enjoy a greater fullness, greater knowledge, greater experience of God? What if I told you that, that this road, those that are walking on this road are those that are mature in Christ? What if I told you that this is the road that allows you to get closer to God, but it's also a road that not so many people walk on? It's a road that actually has no ending. This life that you're living now, if you decide, and it's a choice to walk on this road, by the way, if you decide to take this road, it's a pilgrimage that will take you the rest of your life. Would you like to know what that road is? I'd like to introduce you this morning to the high road. Uh, I appreciate John Maxwell a lot. John Maxwell says that in life, when we deal with other people, we have a choice in how we treat other people and how we respond to other people. There are three roads that we can take. First road that we can take is the road where we treat others worse or we respond to people worse than they've treated us or responded to us. Then there's the middle road, and the middle road's the road that a lot of people live on. The middle road, uh, we, we use the Old Testament to justify the middle road, and the middle road's where, you know what, well, I'm going to treat everybody how they treat me. They've spoken to me like this, they've treated me like this, they disrespected me, so therefore I am within my rights to treat them how they've treated me. That's the, that's the middle road. Neither of those two roads, those two roads will find you walking in the wilderness with God around and around the mountain. Remember the Israelites? <laughs> 40 years to take a 40-day trip. I want to introduce you today to the high road. And the high road where, is where each and every one of us make a deliberate choice to set aside circumstances, set aside how it is that other people may have treated us and make a conscious decision, I'm going to treat everybody better than they've treated me. The high road is called love. If we have churches of love, and this is specifically, Paul in Romans 12, Paul is deliberately aiming his, uh, all of his points towards the church. And in verse 9, he moves on from where we were last week and says, let love be genuine. What was interesting was he doesn't urge them to begin loving one another. He doesn't say you guys should move to a place where you start loving one another. He assumes the fact that if you are a follower of Christ, if you have accepted the gospel of Christ, then surely you're already adopting the high road. He just wants love to be genuine. There's two questions that arise from that verse. First, what did he mean by genuine? The second one is really what is love? I'm so glad you asked those two questions today because we're going to answer those questions. But 
quite often we measure spiritual maturity. We, we say, well, that person speaks in tongues or, or, or that person's been known to prophesy or, or that person holds a position in the church, so they're really spiritual mature. But we're going to see by the end of today that you can have all of those things, but if you don't have love, you don't have anything. And in fact, uh, churches today are trying to largely, uh, it's like a race for revival sometimes, but if we really, really want God to move powerfully in our lives and in our communities, then we must choose the high road. We must live in love towards one another. And as I stand here this morning and... Recent events that are outside of this place highlight one thing. Churches at times have got this wrong. At times, I admit, we've got this part wrong. Jesus says you can, Jesus says the number one way that everybody else in the world is going to know that you are my disciples, that you follow me, the greatest apologetic the greatest witness to the world outside is that you love everybody in here. And I'm asking everybody this morning if you will join me on the high road because the high road is the place where we stop tearing each other apart, we stop gouging out each other's eyes, we stop treading on everybody else to try and get to the top and we live in love. And I believe, and Scripture will back me up, But if there is an atmosphere of love here, you wait and see what God will do. But what did Paul mean when he said, let love be genuine? He goes on in this verse uh, and says that we should live in brotherly affection. We should outdo one another in showing honour to each other. But in asking us to be genuine with our love, he's he's aiming that comment. See, genuineness today... uh, might mean something a little bit different. But in the first century, when Paul was writing this, uh, it was without hypocrisy. It's sincerity. It's love each other with a sincerity. But hypocrisy may even mean something different today than what it did in the first century. Hypocrisy was a term from theatre or the stage. And if you were a good hypocrite, you were a really good actor. Because you were able to play the role. You weren't really that person on stage. You didn't really do all those things on stage. You were playing a role. What what Paul says is, hey, listen, the church isn't a stage, friends. And you guys were never meant to be actors. You're supposed to grab hold of the love of Christ and love one another. Let it be genuine. Not just play the role, but let it be an inward action that manifests on the outside. I really appreciate, as we work our way through the following verses, next week we're going to talk about what it means to be fervent in spirit. That's, a, that's an awesome verse, that. But A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, asks us to look back over the history of church history. And if you have a look at all the prominent people that impacted their communities deeply, you will find that their outside life, and this isn't always the case, and we're learning that recently, he says... What you see on the outside in their life, we, we see the flashy meetings, the, the great preachers, the, the great messages. He said, but if you peel the curtain back, there's a root of righteousness. There is a solid inward substance in their life, which is the cause of their outside life. And, and unfortunately, uh, a man I respected and admired greatly has shown 
that when you don't have the inward root, the outward capitulates very quickly. And I'm sad to hear what happened with Ravi Zacharias. But what Paul is pleading with us is to have a root, a genuine root inside of us of loving one another. But what does that look like? What does it look like to love one another? And what even is love? Well, I want to disperse a few myths this morning, if I can, when it comes to love. First thing I want to disperse is you are not asked, called or mandated to like anybody. Because love has got nothing to do with who you like. The Bible commands us to love everybody. And so often we think, well, you know what, I'll show love to the people that I like. But that's not what Jesus did. In fact, when you were completely unlikable, when you were steeped in your sin and in your rebellion, when you were enormously unattractive to God, he came in love and died for you. The Christian gospel message is a message of love that is outside of circumstances. So love has got nothing to do with who you like and I would encourage you to like some people. It helps. Another thing is we think that love is all, well, I'll wait for all of the emotions. This applies to our relationship with God as well, just as an FYI, as we're digressing a little bit. I want everybody to know that feelings and how you feel and where your emotions are have got nothing to do with love. Love is a choice. The biblical word for love is agape, and it's a deliberate choice that is outside of the will. It's outside of the emotions, excuse me. So what I mean by that is, first, love is a choice. And if, if I could paint a picture for you, think of a train for a moment. And if, and if love was a train, then right at the front driving it is a choice. Deliberate intention and will to love somebody. And it looks like you put it into action. And then down the line would be the caboose of emotions and feelings. And they catch up later on. And so many people come and talk to me and say, well, you know, I, I, I just... I'm kind of disillusioned with this God thing. I'm just waiting for all of the emotions. Well, you'll be waiting a long time. Loving God looks like a deliberate choice. You know what? I'm going to set some things aside in my life and we're going to see over 20 people today that are going to get into a pool and be baptised and they're going to stand up and say, you know what? I've made a deliberate choice that I'm going to love and follow God. Through the waters of baptism. Love is a choice which removes the whole, I just don't feel it kind of thing. Now, of course, marriage, love, and helps if you feel it when you're married, by the way, but uh, that's, a, that's, a sermon for, that's a sermon for another day. Agape love, agape love, is a godlike love that loves despite circumstances. Paul says, and I, and I pray, I pray that there are pastors listening to me today that will read 1 Corinthians 5.14 and that you will understand that leadership in church circles sounds like this. The love of Christ, says Paul, controls me. Everything I do, everything I say, every thought that I have, every letter that I write to you guys, based on love. Help us to live our lives as Paul lived his life. Speaking about the Corinthians, for those that uh, are seeking a definition of what love is, we're going to work through Paul's definition in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul writes to the Corinthian church 
And the, the Corinthian church was enormously immature. They'd kind of been birthed, everything was going along all right, but they were... They began to tolerate stuff they shouldn't tolerate. There were relationships happening that shouldn't have been happening. There was some really flamboyant stuff that was going on. And Paul had heard about some of the stuff that was going on. And also they had sent a letter to Paul asking him questions. And we know that because he writes things like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. It's obvious that he's answering questions that they have asked. Let me tell you that there's no coincidences in the Bible and it is no coincidence and it's not by chance that wedged between the two most powerful chapters and lists of the, uh, the gifts of the Spirit is a chapter on love. That's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that when Paul was speaking to a community of believers that wanted to experience the power of God moving amongst them and within them, that right in the middle of all that is the chapter about love. That is not a coincidence. He talks about the body in chapter 12. He talks about the gifts. In chapter 13, just before chapter 13, he says, and now I will show you a more excellent way. What Paul is saying to the Corinthians is, we've talked about spiritual gifts, we've talked about the body, we've talked about the part that we may play in the body. We spoke about that last week. And now Paul says, I want to show you a higher road. I want to show you a more excellent way. Have a listen to what Paul had to say to the Corinthians. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. To the ears of many in the world, we are a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Why? Because there's no love backing up everything else. Verse 2, And if I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries... Like our wives, husbands. And I have all knowledge and I have all the faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love. I am nothing. If I give away all I have, that's sort of challenge, by the way. And if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, Paul says, I gain nothing. What's Paul saying to the Corinthians? You know what? You guys can be swinging and dancing in the Holy Spirit all you like. You can be running around, and I I know I use this a lot, you can be running around making chook noises and barking like a dog and thinking it's all in the Holy Spirit. But if you guys haven't got any love, you're just making a whole lot of noise. The Apostle John is the only apostle who died a natural death. If you read his gospel and you read his epistle, you'll find that there's a common theme that runs through them. We're going to touch on his gospel a little bit later. It's all about loving one another. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, recorded in the gospel of John, a new commandment I give you, and that is to love one another. But the 98 or 99-year-old apostle John, so frail that he couldn't walk to the church at Ephesus for the meetings, but had to be carried Eusebius, the historian, records that the men that would carry him in could hear him constantly muttering under his breath, love one another, love one another, love one another. There was a pastor, I thought thought I'd spare you guys this, but there was a pastor in America who for six weeks straight, shortest sermon in the world, stood up and read the verse, love one another, closed his Bible, sat down, 
said, let's go home. Did that for six weeks until everybody got the message. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Everyone's wondering, what's going on? Is he... <laughs> Most pastors are, yeah. We're already there. When you, when you have a look at Paul, when you read Paul's writings, he's asking himself questions and answering them. <laughs> Church leadership, we're all bonkers. It's okay. We, we get it. And before there's any amens, let's move right along. The question that we should ask ourselves is this. If this is so important, John says it's important, Paul says it's important, we're going to learn that Peter says it's enormously important. If all these guys say that it's enormously important, then what is Love. How do we break it down? Well, Paul's tried to help us a little bit. Uh, Paul is going to tell us two things that love is, and then he's going to show us eight things that love is not. And sometimes we can best understand what something is by looking at what it's not. Let's start with some of the really easy ones. Love is patient. Wives. Love is... I'm looking this way, you see, when I say these things, Terry. (laughs) love is patient but what does it mean love is patient love is long-suffering love doesn't say i gave you 10 minutes i've given you two chances love looks like this i have found with god that what he does is he will take you through the furnaces of life or he will take you through the muddy swamps of life for one reason that you can go and get back into the swamp and help others walk their way through that And patience looks like I'm going to get in waist deep and I'm going to walk with you through this swamp and through this mud, not until, not for five minutes, not for ten minutes, not for a couple of days. I'm going to walk through this swamp as long as it takes to get to the other side. That's what a patient love does. Patient love doesn't wear a watch. We have some people here that don't wear watches. Love is patient, says Paul. A patient love endures with, walks through with, suffers alongside, often until the conclusion is reached, not measured by time elapsed. Love is patient, love is kind. You'll notice when you read this list that love is not nice. Jesus was never nice. Because niceness is measured by, I will change what I'm saying, I will change what I'm doing to suit the people that are around me because I don't want to offend anyone. Jesus didn't really mind if he offended you or not. He wasn't going to change. He just loved you. Love is patient. Love is kind. And the best way to understand kindness is, kindness rolls up its sleeves and pitches in and helps. This is what kindness does. If you see an old lady with eight bags walking with her eight bags of groceries to the car and she's struggling, kindness doesn't stand there and say, you know what, you should join the gym and build up your muscles. No, kindness says, can I take those bags for you? Kindness says, a love that is kind says, let me step in here and help. Love is patient. Love is kind. If... If, by the way, you get to the end of the definitions of love and you think you've ticked all of them, go back to the start and reread them, please. I don't think any of us get all of this right any of the time, all of the time. Kind is sympathetic and a helpful nature. It steps in. Love is not 
jealous or love does not envy. Love is not jealous. What is the best way to... uh, Jealousy here in the Greek is best understood as a resentment when others are promoted or are blessed. Best way to understand what this jealousy looks like is when you look at Joseph's brothers in the book of Genesis. They were enormously resentful at God's favour upon Joseph and the dreams that he had had. What's the lesson from Joseph? If God gives you a dream, shut your pie hole. Don't tell anybody, okay? Keep it to yourself and everything will be okay. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Now, what's the opposite of a jealous love? We celebrate when somebody else is promoted or when things go well for somebody else. We celebrate the other person. Agape love is celebrating. Uh, Love does not envy and it does not boast. And here's where I fail. Because boasting is having a big head. It's having an ego. My son's out, so he's not going to hear me now. But my son accuses me when we go fishing of being (laughs) big-headed. Because when I catch fish, I take photos. I I say, hey, Reuben, did you see the fish? He does the same. Yeah, he's very big-headed. Love doesn't boast. It doesn't parade oneself. Love is happy in the shadows. It's unhappy to catch fish and not tell everybody. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant, puffed up, self-focused. Arrogant people... You can always tell an arrogant person because when you're having a conversation with them, it's all about them. (laughs) And have I told you about myself? And when they've finished telling you about themselves, they want to tell you about themselves. Does not boast, it is not arrogant, it is not rude, it is not ill-mannered. To be rude here is to act with a hostile mannerism. I, I remember I drove taxis for six years and we had... We were trying to create a new culture. How we did that is another story, but we had a motto or a saying that we used to use in the taxis. Everybody, whether you were drunk, whether you were going to the airport, whether you were running late, whether you had five kids in the back of the car, didn't really matter. (laughs) Manners don't cost you anything. It doesn't cost you anything to say, you know what, thanks for that. It doesn't cost you anything to be polite to another person. Love isn't rude. Isn't ill-mannered, isn't blunt. We're getting to some really good ones, by the way. Wives, love does not insist on its own way. Oh, that one's a corker, isn't it? Love that's in the community of God. Everybody's having a chuckle, but let's be serious for a moment. How often have we seen situations that sound a little bit like this? Well, you know what? Um, I don't really want to be involved with that because here's how I think it should be done. And uh, if you're not going to do it that way, it insists that it must be done their way. And if it's not done my way, I'm going to throw grenades, I'm going to scratch, I'm going to pick, I'm going to criticise because you have to do it my way because my way has to be the right way. I think that one speaks for itself. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or easily provoked. And here's a really big one that I wanted to touch on. Because when I looked at this word for resentful, another word you could use is bitter or bitterness. 
Here's the problem with bitterness. Bitterness looks like this. It looks like drinking poison and hoping it kills the other person. And having a deep-seated resentment uh, sounds a little bit... One writer uh, tells the story of a cultural habit amongst uh, a tribal habit amongst a very remote Polynesian tribe. Upon a stumbling upon this tribe, he found something very interesting. Around the huts were all these weird ornaments hanging from the roof. So we got the better of him and he says, what's the go with all of these ornaments hanging around the roof? And he found out that every time a wrong was incurred against somebody, they would take a memento and hang it from the roof so that every time they walked out of their hut, it would remind them of the wrong that was incurred against them and that the hatred would stay there and the vengeance would be exercised as soon as possible. Interesting thing is that there are so many people today that are hanging mementos from the roofs of their huts. There are people, I have many conversations, that have got mementos hanging from past church experiences, and I get it. I'm not removing the hurt. I'm not removing the experience. I get it. But quite often, you're the only one that knows that memento's there. You're the only one that's feeling the ill effects of the poison. What love does is, it doesn't store up past hurts. Let's be honest for a moment. If you've been in church for five minutes, you may have been hurt or offended. We'll get to offence in a minute. Offence is a beauty, by the way. Love cuts down those mementos in our hearts and says, you know what, I'm just going to let them go. When you get on the train of love, you have to put down some luggage before they'll let you get on. You can't come on with all of that luggage and that resentment and that bitterness. You've got to put it down. It'll eat you up. It's like rust in a car. If you leave it unchecked, it's just going to eat everything away. It does not rejoice. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. You, you won't hear love rejoicing when somebody else falls. Isn't it interesting? I, I didn't really want to go too deep into this because of the respect I had for the work that God's done through Ravi Zacharias, but it's interesting how after the report has come out and it's been highlighted that there's been some systemic habitual behaviour over a long period of time that is rather questionable, it's interesting how everybody turns around now and is beginning, one, to celebrate, and two, this is people in church circles, by the way, and another thing to say, oh, well, there was always smoke. We could see this... This has always been the case. What a load of crock. It's, hindsight is a wonderful thing for you to be able to look back and say, well, you know, that we can see that there was always problems. You know what? Love, forgets, love focuses less on the stumbles and the falls of other people and guards its own heart. Love is more concerned about the fact that we are all capable Our own human heart is capable of doing some of the same things. Love never seeks to tear down, but it always celebrates when somebody else comes through. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Verse 7, I love this one. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. 
Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. We have taken the all out and quite often we insert the sum. You know what? Love bears some things. No, love bears all things. And that word bear in the Greek means to cover. Uh, there's a v- verse in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, and what Peter is doing is he's urging everybody, keep on loving one another, he says. And he says, keep on loving one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Thank you. But the Greek word for sin is offence. Love covers a multitude of offences. And I have learnt that... Let's take some really silly examples. Oh, I'm so offended because that person spoke to me in this way or, or they didn't respect me properly or I turned up on Sunday and they were sitting in my seat and I'm so offended. Nobody dares sit in your seat, Robin. No, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even dare sit in your seat. But I have learned that the problem isn't the offence and the problem isn't the offender. The problem is there's a lack of love. Because when you have love, it covers. It's like, yeah, you sat in my seat. No worries. Ah, you didn't mean that. We move on. Love does something that uh, I think we could all do with. It hands us a cup of concrete. It says, get over it. Uh, I love uh, the, this analogy of the oyster, but... Oysters, some of us may not know, every now and again, oysters will get grit and sand inside of them. And it annoys them. And immediately that they try, that that grit gets in there, they try to get rid of it. It's like the, the hurts and the offences that happen in our lives. We try to get rid of it. We try to, we try to do something about it. But, but most often, they actually can't get rid of that grit. And the minute that they get a bit of grit, they begin secreting a very special substance that covers the grit because it annoys them. And they cover it and cover it and cover it. Something very beautiful and precious happens and they produce pearls. What Peter is saying to the believers is love covers everything. It produces pearls. Paul wasn't joking when he said all things. Let's finish off this chapter before we get to the analogy in the Gospel of John. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And with age, you can guarantee it. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Listen to the words of Paul here. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. I think Paul looked down the, the timeline of the future and looked right to the millennials when he wrote this verse. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. I'm a millennial, by the way. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. What is he saying to the Corinthian church? You guys want to be mature? It's time for you to put away your childish ways. Stop thinking about other people. Stop reasoning within yourself and justifying these actions and get over it and love one another. 
The church of Jesus Christ will stay in the wilderness walking round and round and round and round and round and round the mountain until we pass this exam. I found something about the exam room of God. You don't leave until you pass. I have, not here, I have been in church circles previously where I've heard comments like, you know what, everything could be just fine and dandy if we could get this person out. And I want, to, I want to give everybody a hint. The minute that person leaves, somebody exactly like them is going to come back through the door. Because you will pass the exam. You will learn to love as Christ loved. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Pulpits are full of messages about faith. Pulpits are full of messages about faith and trying to get whatever we want and here's some hope, but what about some love? If you're sitting here today and you're thinking to yourself, I wonder what this looks like. As we come to a close, thank you, Maria. We're going to finish with a song before we go home today. Uh, The greatest example of this, uh, if you're sitting here today saying, what should I expect from leadership in a church? If you want to know who the most holy people are, if you want to know who the most spiritual people are in any congregation, look for the ones with the dirtiest hands. Look for the ones that are actually got their hands dirty and their sleeves up and the sweat coming off them because they're helping people. (laughs) Uh, Let me give you an example of what this looks like. In the Gospel of John, we come to chapter 13. And let me give you a little bit of what's happening around here for a moment. Because it says in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. Jesus knows that his hour has come. Jesus knows that Judas has just left the room and he's going to go and get a band of men that are going to come and arrest him. He's going to suffer intolerable pain. He's going to be, the passion of the Christ was kind of kind to us. He will be marched naked up the hill with a piece of timber on his back that every one of us should have had. He's coming right to the pointy end of his life, but he parks all of that for a moment. Now, if there was a moment in the time of Christ where he could have said, hey, whoa, 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 you guys, can you just swallow a cup of concrete for a moment? What about me? If Jesus had a what about me moment, this is it. What about me for a moment? What about what's going on in my world? What about the fact that... No, 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 he puts all that aside for a moment. And when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus taught me a very important lesson that shakes me even today. We see in the Gospel writings that right from the beginning, when Jesus called Judas, he knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew how he was going to do it. He knew when he was going to do it. And even though Jesus knew all of that, what did Jesus do to Judas? Jesus did not isolate Judas. He did not put him out on his own. He did not make an example of Judas. Jesus loved him. Right up until the end. Jesus loved him. What? He knew what Peter was going to do. Told Peter what he was going to do. And then when he catches up with Peter after the resurrection, doesn't mention it. 
Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet. Washing of feet was customary in the first century. It was reserved for servants. Wives may have washed their husbands' feet. Children may have washed their father's feet. But it was a dirty, disgusting job. Imagine feet walking through the streets of Jerusalem with open sandals, walking through where people wee and poo and do all those things. Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to to take off my towel. He pours water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples. And he wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus is still doing this today, by the way. He still wipes my feet. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter. Simon Peter had a problem. He didn't have foot and mouth disease. He could get both in at the same time. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? As if to say, what do you think you're doing? Here's one of the biggest problems that I think we've done with the church is we've brought the corporate world out there and we've pulled it into the church and we're trying to make pastors into CEOs. You've got to be running organisations now. Leadership has looked like I hold a position and a title and everybody has to do... No. I had one person describe to me recently who was a very prominent church leader, said, you know what, leadership for me looks like I make all the decisions and everybody does all the work. I said, you've got the coin around the wrong way. That's not what Jesus showed us. We have the church in its embryonic form sitting in a room with Jesus. No Judas now. We just have the 11. This is the church in embryonic form. And Jesus says, this is, this is who you are. This is what you do. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand. But afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And how many of us would have answered like Peter does? Peter says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. If washing my feet means I have a share with you, Jesus, just what? Just keep going. Jesus says, you got both feet in again, Peter. Jesus said to him, the one who was bathed, three words are used here. The one who was bathed does not need to wash. Bathe simply means to wash all of yourself in a bath. To wash means to have a light sponge. So those who have had a bath don't need to have a, a sponge off anymore. Only need to have a sponge off but they are completely clean. But that word clean is very different. It's about being standing before God purified. Jesus says, you're clean, Peter. But not every one of you, speaking of Judas. For he knew who was about to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place. Listen to this part. He said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. Leadership in church circles is not positional. It's the lowest form of leadership. John Maxwell says, if you think you're a leader and you turn behind you and no one's following you, you're just going for a walk. 
Jesus showed us what leadership looks like. Jesus showed us what love looks like. You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Was Jesus saying we should get basins and and towels? No, no, Jesus is trying to change a cultural mentality here. And, And far too often, we are far too prone walking into church with our feet up going... I've got, dirty, I've got dirty feet. The worship team have just got to sing just right and the pastor's got to preach just right and everybody's got to treat me just right because I'm the one with dirty feet. But what Jesus says is, no, no, no. When you get this, you'll understand you don't walk in here holding your feet up. You walk in with a towel and a basin saying, how can I help? Jesus says, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Love looks like, how can I practically help you? Love looks like, I'm going to park me for a moment. And I'm just going to bless you. That's what love looks like. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the greatest example of love. You step down out of heaven... You stepped into all of our nakedness and shame and guilt and you took it all away. You didn't come, Lord, for accolades. You didn't come, Lord, for positional titles. You didn't come seeking your own interests. You came seeking our interests. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that the message of the gospel paints a picture of a God that loved us so much that you gave up your position to help us. Father, I pray that you would teach every one of us that love. I pray that you'd show every one of us the high road. Lord God, that you would break down the pride, that you would break down our arrogance, that you, Lord God, would allow each one of us to take a knife to those mementos we hang from our hearts, Lord God, that you would remove all bitterness. And I pray that we would love one another. Help us to do that, I pray. In your wonderful name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website, at therock.org.au You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.